I became an alcoholic anonymous, I'm in my mid-60s, so I'm uh, really, truly, I feel younger today than I did that rainy day when I came into the Alcoholics Anonymous ward at the St. Thomas Hospital. During World War II, though, <laughs> it was a mess inside of me, outside of me, around me, and the whole world was in a mess. But, you know, as time goes on, I met one of my old friends here, my old friend Bill McNally. And I tell him, Bill, I said, you know, it does make you kind of feel old sometimes. I said, looking around, you know, at the movies that how the old guard is going on to its reward. <coughs> and uh, I don't believe there's, about a, I'd say, to eight or ten, it was at the meetings when I first come into the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, they weren't coming in too young in them days. And uh, I, coming in as young as I was, I received an awful lot of attention, which today, as I stand before you here on this Sunday night, I'm awful grateful that I got all that attention which made it possible for me to still be sober and be here tonight. I remember in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous some of the advice and some of the gems that I picked up on the way. And they had told me at that time, after you've had a certain amount of success in sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're convinced there is a better way to live than what you had been living prior to coming to AA, if you want to continue that way, stay active, Stay close to a program and do the things you're asked to do. So I'm here tonight for two reasons. One reason, I was asked to come here tonight. And number two, I want to stay sober another day. There's only one day at a time that we can stay sober. There are no yesterdays and tomorrows. It's all today. And to me, that's the key to Alcoholics Anonymous way of staying sober. Like he said, my name is Dan Trage, and I'm from Barbon, Ohio. Would you mind bowing our heads in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for this beautiful day that thou hast blessed us with, and we thank thee for the privilege of being assembled here this beautiful evening. Our humble prayer is that through this way of life that thou hast made possible for us, may we be ever grateful unto thee and strive to show thee our gratitude day by day, by striving to serve a more useful purpose in this world and to help make this a better world to live in. Amen. <coughs> that is the prayer that I made up as I went along. When I came at the Alcoholics Anonymous program, financially bankrupt, friendless, and spiritless, and everything else, and when I was asked to leave my first meetings in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, I knew no, 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 I didn't know no prayer. I had no watch. <laughs> I had a borrowed watch, and I had to be, find out who in that audience knew how to say a little prayer. So some of the gems that I picked up from the Alcoholics Anonymous way of life is I have my own watch now, you know, and I also have, uh, my own prayer. I remember, you know, that the early days of AA, we used to have one individual, and, uh, uh, he was a, very active AA when he was sober, but he had trouble off and on. He recently passed away, I won't mention his name. And I know he has that, on a hot day, like he'd always say, now that I've convinced you people that I had a coat to match his pants, I'm going to take the coat off and get down to business. Well, my coat don't match, I'm not going to take it off. <laughs> and I know he had another one when he'd get up to give a lead. Uh, he'd give exactly how many years he's been to alcoholics a month. And right down to the minute. <laughs> and then he proceeded to talk. I'm not going to do that because I don't know how many minutes it is, but I know it's been quite a while. Uh, like I said, my name is Dan Kirchhoff. I'm an alcoholic, and I feel this way here, and I've been told by the pioneers of the movement who gave so much of themselves for me to make it possible for me to be here tonight, that I'll be an alcoholic till the day I die. So with that mind, that thought in mind, in my subconscious mind, I have to just take this thing one day at a time. I have also come to believe that there is no seniority. I have no more seniority tonight in Alcoholics Anonymous program than a man who stood up and he asked who the newest, who was the new people coming out Alcoholics Anonymous. I want that man to feel that him and I are on the same level, in the presence of the same cross for the same cause, an Alcoholics Anonymous fellowship and stay sober another day. I'll give you a little bit about my background. I'm from the city of Barbon, Ohio. A little bit outside of Barbon, a little old Cow Bottom Valley, you know. The Valley of the Hunkies, you know. 
That's where I was raised. At. I was born in Akron, and uh, our, my father being a minister, the three older boys, including me, we started getting kind of rotten. He came more, so he picked up the pieces before any more damage would be done and rushed us on the country. This little place, you know, where all the hunkies lived, they raised cattle, and they had raised goats and chickens. What name it, they raised them. And they also had whiskey still. Some of the best whiskey in this part of the state was made in called Bottom Valley. My father, being a minister, he didn't make whiskey, and he didn't drink it. But the man next door didn't either, because he was a member of my father's church. But the rest of the hunkies, they made hay while the sun was shining. <coughs> it was bad in them days, they sold to one another. This guy made a better batch than the other guy did, you know. And I can still see that smoke on an early morning coming out of the other berry bush at the men's hills, you know. Yes, it was a great time, you know. And, you know, in them days, you know, we, there was a, uh, they used different names to call us hey, the immigrants from here, such as hunkies, walks, dangles, garlic snappers, onion eaters, you know. <laughs> I know we went, we went to school, you know, with American people, and they didn't have much use for us, especially if we bought garlic sausage in our Budget, but after all those hunkies, you know, my mom, we raised her own hogs, raised her own guys, <coughs> it was cheap in them days, you know. So, you know, they got load up the sausage, you know, and of course, school American people get away from that garlic sausage, you know, they pamper destroy our lunches, and that's hungry. We got kind of nasty for a while. At one time, we got so bad, you know, that we'd be ready to move out, go, go back to Europe. And we, got, we got excursion rates, but they didn't have excursion rates in them days. So we stuck it out because I'll tell you why we stuck it out. At that time, you know, from the south came the southern people, from West Virginia came the West Virginians, and the colored people started coming up here. And, you know, they started picking them and took the pressure off us hunkies and we decided to stay, you know. And we have been thanking these people from the south ever since then for coming up here and making it possible for us to live in America. But that didn't make us an alcoholic, you know. In a, in a big epidemic in 1920, when they was falling on the streets in the schoolroom, I got a bad joke of ankylosis with the bone and infantile paralysis. And as a boy of nine, I was bigger than my two other brothers. I could hit and run. I could hit them hard and run faster than both of them. <laughs> and uh, when later I had my schooling in bed, I was to be a cripple the rest of my life. And when I went to our barber in high school, it was a brown and white. It wasn't a purple and white in days, you know. You could tell how old I am. Come on brown, come on white, but now it's purple, you know. And I went to the BHS, and you know something? The basketball team wasn't interested in me. I was 4 feet 10. I weighed out 62 or 64 pounds at that time. I walked sideways. My right knee popped out. I had to hold it to keep from bumping into people, and I walked sideways. My mother used to bring me to school with a buggy because I couldn't walk that distance. And they made fun of us because we come to work. We, we did wear army shop kids, so we come in a horse and buggy. And uh, I also in high school, I the football team didn't want me. I wasn't heavy enough. I couldn't run. Baseball team didn't want me. Even the girls won't play hopscotch with me and jump rope with me. And uh, you know, and they had any events in school, they looked down the little hunky walk sideways, and they shunned me, and I shunned them. And at a very young age, I became a rejected. A boy who thought I was I had was a misfit in this world, and I'd go home and tell my mother about it, and she'd always comfort me. And you know, one day before I reached age of 16, I worked for the telegraph company. I discovered there was a help for this complex and phobia of mine of people walking and laughing behind my back, making fun of my physical handicap. And out of the neck of the out of the neck of the bottom came the answer to my complex of my phobia. And you know, I didn't know why I. I didn't start that before, but I was in messenger business, and then days they couldn't give us cash tips. It, they give us tips and alcohol, and, you know that wasn't bad. And in order you buy pint, half pint, quarter, fifty cents, whatever you had, they sell it. And I used my tip for that, and sometimes I got good tips in the morning. I'd make my rounds, and all the poor people knew me, you know. I was a little rum runner at a very young age. The telegraph man knew where to send Danny at. He knew where to get the best whiskey for the lowest prices. And that was my starting life. All the characteristic defects of a first-class alcoholic and a conniver. And, you know, the barber in high school took a dim view of me going to school smelling from alcohol one rainy day. For three months before I was 16, I was expelled from my high school. And that's where my story of my life begins. The road to hell and the road back. And in this room of ours tonight and throughout this world of ours tonight, you can't find any better qualified individual to talk about the road to hell and the road back 
And we in the Alcoholics Anonymous Fellowship who are gathered here in Akron, Ohio, on this Sunday night. And you know how I wrote the hell started? It was that night when I went home. I had a face preacher Joe. And the Board of Education came here that night to tell him what had happened to me. Why they had a kid expelled me from high school. And that night my father was going to show him how the European men rule the roost. He was going to show, give a demonstration to the American people how the overseas people do to when the kids get out of line. Man, did he give me a, dem- a demonstration. He broke one big stick on me and used a strap on me and beat me for about an hour and something. And I, the first time, and the kids were all crying, we had a big family, and that night was the first time in my life I ever defended myself against a stern and strict father of mine. And I reached up and pulled that strap away from him, and I said, Joe, I call him Joe. I said, you'll never live long enough to hit me again. This is it, Joe. And that was a rainy November night when I denounced him and his church and the God he represented in this world with his congregation. And I screamed at him, and I called him different things. I walked out of that room that night and I stood out in front of that house on a rainy November night. I made my own choice, my own decision. I didn't want that straight and narrow path of righteousness. I chose a wide open road. I had a job now and I didn't need Joe and I didn't need nobody in the family. I was to be on my own. And that, ladies and gentlemen, turned out to be my road to self-destruction and the road to hell. And for 18 years I journeyed on this road down, using alcohol for an escape. Alcohol did something to me that no medicine or no doctor ever did for me. It's with every drink I, dr- I drank, I seemed to grow taller and I limped less. And when I did, I cooked that after I got to where I could hear voices and laughter, then I didn't know if people were laughing at me because I was drunk or laughing at me because I was sober or they talking about me or the man next to me. But soberly as the years went by, I never walked the streets of Barter and sober. I'd always walk the alleys and the side streets. I didn't want people to be walking behind me and making remarks about my physical handicap, which I was very sensitive about. And like I say, I used this alcohol for an escape, and it's a crutch. And it did something to me that the doctors had failed to do and medicine had failed to do. And years later, on a rainy day in, 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 in <coughs> during World War II, when I came through the confines of the alcoholic ward in St. Thomas Hospital in Hacker, Ohio, on a hill, and when a whiskey fumes had cleared away, and the peraldehyde fumes had died down, but I still had some restraining straps around me and sides of my bed. The awful realization dawned upon me that what I had used for an escape and a help for many years, that this alcoholic clutch someplace, it paid in left me without support. Do you think I was better after 18 years of drinking? Do you think my physical handicap was better? Tonight, truthfully, I say no. You know something? They're trying to straighten out my hip and my back and my leg. I acquired another handicap between my ears, which my family called nuts. I don't know if your family ever called you that or not. And that was a condition. I realized that alcohol had failed me. I was in worse shape now than I was when I committed to the alcohol when I first started drinking. You know, as I journeyed on this road down, I became like most alcoholics. I became a conniver, a deceiver, and a great pretender, and a chiseler. I had a brilliant future with a telegraph company, which is out of business now, the Postal Telegraph. And at the age of 19, I was made head man in the city of Barberton. I was headed for the big time for New York, you know, and Cleveland, I had my training. And I was one of the most brilliant men in the IPP, you know. And you know something? I would, I, I like to take that letter from I got, the publicity I got, and I could read in different saloons. And, <laughs> and I would let the people know what a big shot I was, as small as I was. And then I seemed to be pretty tall on the influence of alcohol, you know. And when I got fired, I was in one of the vast fields here in this locality. The company decided we could, they, they could get along without that publicity. And that's when I got into the food business in the darkest depression years we ever had. And I had been in the food business ever since then, drunk and sober, drunk and sober. And I got to be a success in the food business. I climbed very rapidly in no time at all. I was a top man in the store. And I was a top man in drinking also, you know. And I worked my way up to one of the better markets in town during World War II. And by now, my father had passed away. By now, I had crossed a thin line on the road to hell. I wasn't drinking anymore because of the, oh, it's called a physical wreck or a human uh, misfit. Uh, I had all kind of names, you know, for me to call myself, but I didn't want anybody else calling me that name. Many times I came home crying to my mother that people are picking on me and making fun of me. Oh, yes, I went home many times after that. 
when I had no place else to go when I broke. We all do that. We find. And my father and I, we hadn't spoke to each other for many years. The only time I spoke to my father when I was under influence of alcohol. And then I let him read the right act to him about his church and about God and what he'd done for me. I know one time I screamed at him so bad. I just had heard him till he came carried the stars to the grave. I said, if you hadn't been so wrapped up in your church, if you hadn't been such a Christian, you professed to be. When I laid in that hospital, when the hospital sent me home to die, you could per- permit a mercy killing. And you could have me put out of the way. And I wouldn't have had to go through what I've gone all these years for the whole world to laugh at me like a circus freak. But you were so wrapped up in your children and your church that you forgot about me and your children. I shall never forgive you for this. And I did tell you about two weeks before he died. We made up about one. And that's the kind of an attitude there was between a father and a son. All through alcohol and my negative thinking. And you know, one day I crossed this thin line on the road to hell. That's after I got in this food business, and I discovered that I was having an awful lot of trouble with alcohol. I also discovered that this alcohol was putting me in places that I wasn't brought up to be, such as a jail and county jail and different places, you know. I know that's an embarrassing feeling, embarrassing, you know, on Sunday morning when the good people of Barton are going to church and I'm laying in the Bastille, hoping somebody's going down there and get me out. Well, my father used to come down there and look at me, but never volunteered to bail me out. He'd just come down and let my mother, satisfy mother's worries that I wasn't in a Hampton-Hickman funeral home or the barber in the hospital. And you know, I had scars all over my face and my body, wires and screws and metals are my grim reminders of my journey on a road to hell. You know something? Time will never erase these scars that I have on my face and body. I'll carry them to my grave. And every now and then I cut myself and I shave and I take a little inventory of the man in the glass. And I have nobody to blame for that but the man in the glass. I put all them scars there. And I also, and I put them scars on my face and body, I put many scars on my mother's heart that she carried to her grave. And my mother, uh, she loved me and I loved my mother when I was sober. In the twilight years of her life when she should have been resting, I said, no, our little country home, she was out the mile and a half road, country road, and even an animal would be out through the snow and the ice and rain, looking for her son, who would fall down the roadside, drunk, Danny. And I come home many nights, this kind of weather reminds me of them December and November nights, when I find her beside the bed, and her prayer was on Serbian, or Serbians, and her prayer was, God, if my Charlie can't stop drinking, Either take me off this earth or take my Charlie, shall I call me by my middle name. And I put my arms around her frail shoulders. And I made another promise that was not to be kept. A promise that tomorrow I'll quit drinking. <coughs> and upon coming in Alcoholics Anonymous, that Tony Bennett song, there's no tomorrow, we find out there's no tomorrow. If we wanted to quit, we had to quit at that time, which I didn't know until coming in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know something? For me to come in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to lose the best friend I had. Some of us have to have a tragedy, some of us a spiritual waking, and some of us numerous trips to the Goody Rose, and even to the rolling hills of Stark County, the mental hospital. And for me to come in Alcoholics Anonymous, it was a, win- uh, a rough winter that winter, and I came home, and I, uh, Thanksgiving Day I spent in jail, and uh, in jail, I know that. Next, I got off that Thanksgiving day and I had chili and carne and beer. <laughs> and, for, uh, and then whiskey for Chaser, you know, that was my dinner. And I was condemning the folks at home because I had taken a turkey home before I got drunk and before I got locked up. And I, I had a little meeting with the doctor and uh, friends of our family. My mother had her second stroke and she can't walk after me anymore. And for me, to help her out and try to stay sober. And I did that. And I came home on Christmas Eve, four below zero, in our little country home. The lights out, the fire's out, the door wide open, and no mother in our house. And the preparation for Christmas was all laid out. I've been sober almost a month now. And that was the night that I found my mother fighting, breathing her last out in the yard. She'd been out for six hours, a little over six hours. She locks the livestock up at five, and I found her at 11.15 that night, on Christmas Eve, four below zero. My mother died the next morning in our local hospital. She never came to. 
And after this mother of mine, who was the only person who ever defended me, was gone from this world, I felt that this world was empty and nobody else ever, nobody else wanted to understand me or tried to understand me. There wasn't love, much love between my brothers and myself, and there wasn't much love with any, between anybody as far as I was concerned. And on the second day of January, the day after New Year's, I went in a place, I had a bad case of resentment. Now this will give you something to think about. Resentment and loneliness is something that the doctors and the hospitals and medicine have never had any success in taking out of a human being. We let that get into our system, and we're the only ones who can take it out. And I got such a bad case of resentment towards the doctors and my family, my mother died like a dog. And then I was resentful toward the Lord. My mother was a Christian. Why did he leave her lay on the yard again with just a dog beside her? And she's a Christian woman, and she had to die that way. My father was a Christian, and gave five years of his best life for serving in a military prison under Franz Joseph because he wouldn't show her a gun to kill his man. And he had to die with cancer in her lung, caught from the last day he died almost. Is that what Christianity is? Is that what God does to the people who worship him? And if I ever had any idea, I thought of worshiping or believing in God, it was removed. And on the second day of January, I took that first drink of alcohol. And I didn't start drinking again as a continuation of the last drunk. And if you thought I had trouble on a road to hell until now, you want to see what happened to me in the next three months. I could offer, if I, uh, what I couldn't write a book on it, the people in Harvard could, and my family could fill in. Well, you can entitle my story, The Rise and Fall and the Comeback of the Second Street Merchant in Barberton. And I could sell a lot of books in Barberton, you know. You know, when I walked on the road to hell, you know, inch for inch and pound for pound, I became the greatest human being hater that I ever walked on the road to hell. I used to carry an invisible synthetic book. And on her, I put, divided this book into two sections. The honor list and a hate list, you know. And you know something, of the 30-some thousand people in Barberton, I think at the end of 18 years, I had all but five on that hate list. And I'm telling you, I could really hate people. I hated my employers, I hated the help, I hated the customers, I hated the police officials, the police, and I hated everybody. I didn't like nobody. And you know, that, uh, the next three months, I slept in the supermarket of the store where I work at. And I did, forgot to tell my employer until he stepped in my face one morning, and I'm sleeping on the floor. You know, now there was nobody cares how long I laid in the jail, how long I laid in the snowbed. You know, one, you know, they say just before you die, you hear music and get warm. And I woke up and I hear music. Da 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 dee dee dee. Remember that old Salvation Army song? Well, and there it was warm. And I thought, well, I must be in heaven or hell. And it was a Salvation Army department. They dug me out of a snowbank around Christmas time. And they were praying for me and playing music for me. That night I made a promise that they'd give me warm soup and coffee, that someday I'd come to the Lord and I would be a member of the Salvation Army, and I have never got around to it yet. <laughs> I'm postponing alcoholics, you know. And you know something? One morning, you know, as a good citizen of Barberton, we're going to church like a good citizen do. They all stopped at this big supermarket on 2nd Street, because in the supermarket display window was laying a manager. Monkey man, dead drunk with a no no shame, a big white bloody coat on, and a tomcat sleeping on his chest. And you know, I kinda, I didn't know where I was at at first, but I rolled out of that window, rolled behind the checkout counter, and finished my nap, you know. By now, I had no self-respect, respect of my family, respect of anybody. Oh, also the family looked took a little time out, not to do me good. Not to commend me, but to condemn me no more. They probated me. You know what probation is? <laughs> That's one step away from the uh, Summit County Jail and 130 miles away from Ohio State Penitentiary if you violate the probation. I was appointed administrator of this large estate of the family because I was the only businessman in the family, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know that you... That I, the only bar I knew about was a quarter grill bar and the rest of the bar downtown. But the law bar is only about it. I thought, well, being administrator... You can sell this stuff and buy whiskey with it, you know. So I take the mattresses and pillows and roll them up and internet for truck. Now a radio and I pedal it off. And then one day I shoveled ten pound of coal out of the and sold it for twenty bucks and me and this guy drank the money up. Or catching chickens at night, you know. Oh, we had a farm. And you ever see a drunk catching chickens by two o'clock? Waking them up first, you know. And I sell these chickens, whatever I get for them, sell the haystacks. 
And a family contest to put Danny under probation. Yeah. You know, it's a big family, nine of us. And hey, you know, I thought, well, I'm administering. Let me get my fees first. If there's anything left, well, they can get the rest, you know. You know, I also had my, after they probated me, I put them on this hate list, too. Get ready? <laughs> and uh, when the Alcoholics Anonymous came after me on the floor of this supermarket, and I sleep with that, I had no other way to go. I had gotten, I'd say, on the road to hell, many of us get to the portal, uh, right to the door to hell, and some of us get to the last crossroad before we enter the portals of hell. I believe the reason we're here, somebody in this fast movie commercialized materialistic mind of world of ours took time and gave themselves and talked to us and told us there's a better road to travel than this rough road to hell that we're traveling on. And that's the road of alcoholics. And you know, I believe that my mother's prayers were answered when it came to me on a rainy day. And I'll tell you who came after me. A man that I had on his hate list. I didn't like this idea even. He's been sober about a year. He did business with me, and I thought he'd cheat me all the time. I didn't trust him. He's prospering so much. He's still prospering today. And uh, when they took me to St. Thomas Hospital, there was not too much argument. The boss said, get him out of here. Now, we had six men running the store, ten girls. And out of the six men, three of us went in Alcoholics Anonymous inside of a year. I think that's batting 500. I think that's a good average. But the boss didn't think so, you know. And uh, one, the oldest one, Frank, he passed on, still sober, which he did that. About a year on me if he was living the day. And he stayed right sober to the day the Lord called him to go home. And uh, when they took me up there, I had it's about eight mile trip. And uh, I, the reason I went to the St. Thomas Hospital, I had reached the end of my journey. I, the only way I could go now, I had gone up. I had no friends, I was on probation. I was in the outs of the police department in Barbara. I had three DWI charges against me. I had 28 violations. They took my driver's license away, and last night they took my license plates away. You know, I get this mail from Columbus, big long white end, it's a slowdown and sundown. State Bureau of Vehicles. I didn't bother opening up because I knew what it was, you know. And, uh, I, it, it was a, I was in an awful condition. I, I, I know my boss, he said to me, he always called me Kirch because we had three Dannys down there. He said, Kirch, I owed him enough money now. It wasn't a payday, just exchange day on him. He was my legal advisor, my employer. He paid my bills, and I slept in the store. He didn't charge me nothing for that. <laughs> and uh, I didn't eat, so I, he knows that. He's a merchandise, but who eats? Well, maybe chili con carne for breakfast. The reason I like chili con carne, I take a double order chili con carne with two teaspoonsful of cayenne pepper in it. And if that would, if I could taste the heat of that cayenne pepper, I knew I was alive yet. <laughs> and then, then I start that whiskey and beer, you know. And then, that would kind of keep me going for noon, you know, because I got to break. And it was uh, that kind of a situation when Alcoholics Anonymous came after me. And I didn't go to the St. Thomas Hospital then because I wanted to secure my job. During World War II, well, I, I got fired 364 times unofficially, and I quit 368 times. I used to quit sometimes five times a week. I, I, I think my, uh, I had a mimograph, my resignation. And all I do is just have the sign and put on his desk. And then pass out on the floor of the store, you know. <laughs> but he couldn't fire me because I owed him money. And if I quit him for keeps, I couldn't drink no more. Because they'll be sponsoring my drunks. And there I was between the devil and the deep blue sea. And they took me to St. Thomas Hospital and I went in there because I said, nobody else wanted me. I like the way Alcoholics Anonymous took me. You know, when I went in AA program, and they, didn't ask me, they didn't ask me what nationality I was. They didn't ask me what religion I was. They didn't ask me how much dollars I got in the bank or what kind of people I associated with. They asked me, do you want to quit drinking? They explained to me that alcohol, I've never been called an alcoholic. It's always been a drunk on a police blotters in there, you know, drunken Danny, hunky Danny, you know. But now, this fancy name of an alcoholic, you know. I said, now, how do you know I'm an alcoholic? <laughs> they could be able to say, well, the record proves there's something wrong with you. You're not normal right now. And, you know, <laughs> I didn't go in there to secure my job. I didn't go to pacify anybody. Because I'll tell you what, I was in no pacifying mood. With this big list I had, 
I didn't like the colored people. I didn't like the white people. I didn't like the Jews. I didn't like the Protestants. I didn't like the Catholics. You name it, I was against it. Until I became anti-Danny. I didn't like to see what I saw in a looking glass. The man looked back at me. It wasn't what I used to look back at when I first started shaving. It was something different. I used to look, think somebody's looking over my shoulder, you know, and the nose was kind of changing colors, you know. And then red veins was appearing in the face, you know. And kind of a bloated looking, you know. I wore dark glasses seven years prior to coming in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a pair of regular glasses under it, and I didn't know that one of the lens was missing until I sewed it up. <laughs> you know something? I always walked on the lonely side of the street, the dark side of the street. Like I was looking for money. I wasn't looking for money. I just didn't want people looking at my face. They used to say to the boss, what makes his eyes like that? Boss said, Dan, wear them glasses, dark glasses all the time. I'm getting tired of answering them questions. I had such a bloodshot eye, you think it just had a transfusion. You know? <laughs> I had bags upon bags upon bags, you know. And he said, please, go take And I slept with them. I played jail with them dark glasses. And I never knew the lens of my real glasses was missing one of me. And that was a condition that Alcoholics Anonymous took me to St. Thomas Hospital. And I'd say I went in there not to secure my job to pacify and get money. Oh, they court it every time. And I didn't go in there. I didn't have to close because, You see, in my condition, I was not invited to any social function. <laughs> you know what I mean? There was a party going on. I wore out my welcome all over. My, my, I know this today. I rapped in the doors of my sisters. I was always telling what I thought of my brother. And the minute I get on that porch, the lights would go out. I could hear the music <laughs> And I could hear the radio playing. We didn't have TVs in them days. Very few. And I used to stand and curse and squeeze when they called the police to get me off a porch. And that's the kind of friendly feeling that people had towards me when I come in Alcoholics Anonymous. Like Alcoholics Anonymous, as I was. I had my first bath in the alcoholic ward after they took the restraining straps off on me. And, you know, I was impressed about the kind of the people that come to see me. One of the early people was there. Most of them have passed on here. This fellow here was a very wealthy man. They not ever too far from here. And he talked to me, and I could tell by the cut of his clothes that he didn't sleep under the bridge. And I could, he had a suit of clothes just fit him like a glove. And he, his hand in shape. And he says to me, would you have a pair of cup of coffee we had to run? We didn't have mayors then. Them days we were on the hall and we had to have a little kitty for coffee. And he said, look at that hand, he said. How steady that is, he said. A year and a half ago, he said, I had to pour my coffee in a saucer and lap it up like a cat. My wife and I had come in Alcoholics Anonymous just to try it for a year, but we liked it when we stayed. And he died sober. And, you know, he was a man, a wealthy man, you know, a manufacturer. And another man came to me and a Dr. Bob and Sister Nick. And I can stand here and tell you of the pioneers of Alcoholics Anonymous, many from, who had their life stories in a book one of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they did with themselves and talked to us, six or seven men in the alcoholic war, and it rained every day I was there. And I had the blues. And they kept telling us day by day. And, you know, the awful realization dawned on me, and I feel about this way here today. You know, when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, they told me that this Alcoholics Anonymous program was absolutely free in mine as long as I wanted. And if I accept this program without reservation, as it is, the four absolutes and twelve steps and the twenty-four hour program and faith in a power that is far greater than us, that I have everything in the world to gain and nothing. That was during World War II. This is the year 1975. A lot of water has went under the bridge. A lot of drinks have went over the bars where I used to drink. And should I toy with the idea tonight, between here and Barbara, that I need a drink of alcohol, you know, I'll sum it up this way. I'll compare it. With the first drink of alcohol I take tonight, I have, it's a reverse situation what it was when I came in. I have everything to leave And I'm not talking about the automobile I drive and a nice home I live in and a lovely wife I have and the different material things that are mine to use just for my duration in this world. But I'm talking about the priceless gems that I have picked up on my road, my journey on the road back, such as my self-respect, 
the respect of my family, the respect of people I work for, the respect of people I do business with, the respect of my church people, the respect of our ministers, and respect of many people. You know something? With the first drink I take, I stand to lose all that. This money cannot buy. I had to earn that. I had to earn and work for the respect of people. You know, it's something else that I have learned to be dependable and honest. I found out that honesty plays a great part in our sobriety. You know, it's a nice feeling when you take a set of keys and put in a half a million, open the door of a half a million dollar business. And at the close of the day, when you're trusted with all that money, lock up a safe and put all that stuff there and you're trusted. And all these people depended on you to get inside that place. And should I fail to appear that day drunk, all these people would look at me in a different light. It's wonderful of a gem that I had picked up in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I didn't have too much success in my first year. <coughs> Sister Ignatius, like I said, I was young. And I had got a lot of attention. But you know, it said uh, I, the last day I was there, it's raining, I'm going to my first meeting. And as I had for pardon, from my first meeting in the African environment, I thought, what if somebody calls me Crip or Limpy? And already I'm getting ahead of the day-by-day program. And, you know, I stayed in a little while and I graduated. And I graduated. And when I came to it's belt buckled for Alderheim Chapel for good. And, you know, after Alderheim Wake, it, it kind of gets to me, you know. <laughs> St. Thomas Cocktail. The second time they isolated me out of a little place on where the Haven home is on the lake, there, $14 a you know what my hospital bill is? I'll tell you, it's the story of inflation. I was in St. Thomas Hospital six days. My hospital bill was $42. I thought that's awful high. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was ashamed to tell my insurance company about it. So I had lost part of the money for false and payments. And about a week after I got out of the hospital, they came down to check on me why they report. I didn't know that they had an MIB, a medical information board. They can find out who's an alcohol. He said, why the heck did you tell us you're an alcoholic? He said, I thought everybody would. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, to make a long story short, I come out of St. Thomas Hospital. I had a little trouble earning. But I had my last month was in City Hospital, and I'll tell you why I'm here tonight. You know, the reason that most of us are is because somebody helped <coughs> me, and somebody took time out, and somebody fired for answers. When I went to City Hospital to put my first artificial hip in, I was there 118 days. And on the 76th day, they told me some news I didn't like. And I was an ideal patient. There were 525 minutes there. And uh, the 77th day, the self-pity resentment got in my system. And out of 525 people in that city hospital, guess who got drunk? Remember about all these anonymous. Little hunky Dan from Barbary. What got me drunk? Self-pity resentment. Or the doctors, because I said I'd stay another 100 days. And when they come found me, I was trying to go down the steps in a wheelchair. The orthopedic ward had rules against orthopedic patients crashing down the steps in wheelchairs, which I had never read that fine print. <laughs> and when I come to, guess what? Dan Kerchiff is shackled to his bed. Room 416, S416, buckles, belts, paralyzed, and shackles. I'm one of the few members that's alive of Alcoholics Anonymous. And actually, you can tell about it, but I've been paralyzed on both ends, and it works. <laughs> <laughs> and for 18 days, that little hellraiser from Barbara almost took the roof of the city hospital off. They had the flag flying their half-mast, I think, the last couple of weeks I was there. And when I got out, they suggested, but I never got out till I did something. And I, I'll never forget, when one of the nurses, a friend of the late Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob is a good friend of mine, I didn't know it. She brought Dr. Bob in to see Dan Kirchhoff shackled to the bed in the city hospital. I'm glad I was passed out when he came in, and I been ashamed to see him. And I want to tell you this. The reason I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous, somebody took a little time out and called me. And you know who called me? This little sister nature. Took time out to put her finger in that telephone number and call me on the city hospital, St. Thomas Hospital, city hospital. And she told me this. Then I had heard about your misfortune. She didn't call it drunk. My family called it drunk. And I have called you this day on this beautiful Sunday to tell you to get the faith that you had when you went into the city hospital, read the book of AA and pray to God. And tonight I and the sisters of St. Thomas Hospital, I'm going to say a prayer for you. God bless you and call you again. And the next day in the city hospital, city hospital, when the sun rose over through my window there, 
flat on my back under a pair of heavy trapeze. Dan Kirchhoff had his last drink of alcohol flat on his back. And when he brought that whiskey to me, I was getting whiskey by the half-water glass. I told me the bottle nurse, and I won't bother the nursing. You know, that's a lot, because here's what they did. Every now and then they'd be late. They were never late with the enemas, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but here was my whiskey, my medicine, too. I called Superintendent Howard Worth one morning at 15 after 2 at his home. Woke him up. The telling as a paid-up patient at the city hospital, Paid in advance, I don't like the kind of treatment I'm getting here. And he said, what kind of treatment? I said, my medication's late. I didn't tell him what kind of medication it was. <laughs> he found out later. And when this nurse came in, found out I had called him. She said, this is a holy day, and if you think I'm going to serve you whiskey, Mr. Christian, you've got another guest coming. She said, I'm a Christian. I said, I had your job, and I had your cap, and I had your badge. Yeah, I told her that, you know. And I said, I hope you marry an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you have to get up every hour on the hour when you stop and shake in the bed wipers. You have to get a funnel and a fifth and pour down his throat so the bed stops shaking. That's what I hope for you. <laughs> and when that sister nature called me up, I had my last drink of alcohol. And I did something then I should have done, and this is good advice to the new and old people, is a searching, fearless, be-down inventory, not of our sponsor, our wife, our minister, our elders, or the priest, but of our own selves, the man in the glass. Before you can become honest with the rest of the world and your family and Alcoholics Anonymous, you must learn to become honest with a man in the glass. And that's the man you're staying sober for. He's the most important individual in your life. You, you got drunk for him, now you're staying sober for him. And you must have a desire for sobriety stronger than that desire for that first drink you ever had when you got up in the morning. And I took a little inventory of myself and I didn't like what to come up with. And it was that day that I Realize why I got drunk. I come to Alcoholics Anonymous in the first year, you know, and I had a kind of a loose hold. They said, take a hold of two handles and hold on tight. And I took a hold only one hand, kind of a loose hold. And you know why I couldn't take a hold of two hands? I had that big book I told you about, and I still put names on that hate list. I also had with me a big bucket of crap, a 20-gallon job. And you know what kind of crap I had in there? Like most of us out here, except Alcoholics Anonymous, on our own terms. Such a thing as resentment, reservations, hatred, egotism, and self-sufficiency. And I thought someday I would need the meetings. I don't need God. I don't need anything. I'll be the master of my own destination. And that day in the city hospital, I took that big bucket of crap and I shoved it under the bed. And I took that big book and I shoved that under the bed. And I reached up and took a hold of these two handles of trapeze above my bed. And I said the first adult prayer in my life, God forgive me for what I have done. God, give me another chance. I want to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to live the kind of a life that thou has put us on this earth to live. And the Almighty God, you know, we believe as we journey on our road back that there is a God. And the same God that was trying to keep us from destroying ourselves as we journeyed on our road to hell is with us today as we journey on our road back. And I feel tonight that the God is not frowning upon this gathering here tonight. He has never frowned on the gathering of Alcoholics Anonymous. But he has frowned on many things we did as we journeyed on the road to hell. And I talked to this God as best I could. That was my last drink. And you know something? I came I took a whole SAA program and I've been holding on ever since. And late that fall I started walking. And six times in my adult life I had to get out of a sick bed and learn to walk all over again. And every time it gets more difficult. I like to compare <laughs> The things that God give us, the wisdom, the talents, and the good health. You know how we appreciate them more? If we have the misfortune to lose them and then get them restored to us again, we appreciate it much more than a man who never lost them. As we of the Alcoholics Anonymous Fellowship walk on a road back today, dedicated to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a service to others, and we turn our wills and lives over to a power greater ourselves, we come to believe that God, we feel this way, that God wants us to do the best we can with what he gives us and what's left to do it with, you know. And you know something? That day when I started walking, I realized how wonderful it is to walk and how wonderful the fall air was. 
And you know something, the realization dawned on me the first few steps I took with these heavy metal crutches under my arms and these heavy casts around my leg, this awkward silver hip inside that never bent, it's not mobile. All this contraption in me, on me, around me wasn't one tenth as heavy as that bucket of crap and that essence that I had carried all my life. So ladies and gentlemen, members of Alcoholics Anonymous, unburdened by the unnecessary burdens that I had burdened myself all my life, I was now walking on a road back of Alcoholics Anonymous, which we continued to travel day by day, which we called our highway of possibilities unlimited. The joys that we received day by day, the blessings that the Lord showers upon us by staying sober and doing his way and helping others. I felt this way. In my first year, maybe a couple of early years, I used to be high and used to be low. When things are going my way, everything's all right. And things didn't go my way, maybe I lost a baby or did sponsor or something, right? But you know, as the years have passed by, I have got some of the serenity that we say in this little prayer. And I have learned to tra travel the happy medium, the middle road. And if we take that middle road, the happy medium, we'll get the things that are promised us in the Alcoholics Anonymous, as the Lord promises, peace of mind and contentment. And I don't want to tell you that the sun's been shining for me every day, almost every day now. I've had some setbacks, sickness, financial setbacks. But my worst days on the road back was better than any day I had on the road down the hill. And this story has a good ending. I went back to it for many years. And in 63, when I almost left this world and the Lord spared me, when they had interdenominational rights for me in the Barberman Hospital, I broke this precious silver hip, death infection set in pneumonia, and I was ready to leave this world. They couldn't get a hold of our men. I got to watch my thinking every day I live. It's positive thinking, only for today. And when I come out of that hospital in diabetic sweats, I saw a lovely woman in a restaurant one day. She was there. I went to see her again. And I courted this woman I married her. And my Catherine and I had been married and soon be eleven years. I got married very young, I was only fifty-three when I got married. That is legally, you know. And uh uh, what I have missed, you know, what I lacked in that empty bachelor's apartment and four walls in the city, Catherine has given it to me. And Catherine and I have been getting along wonderful. Catherine would come to the meetings. Neither one of us smoke, and Catherine can't stand tobacco. Her eyes water for three days after she gets smoked in them. Smoking's in your eyes, you know. But she always has sent greetings to the members of AA. She loves Alcoholics Anonymous. She loves the people in it. She knows they're nice people. And I love Catherine. And a year ago, 14 months ago, I had to quit working. And when I had a little incident in Florida, I, my good leg, my bread and butter leg, caved in on me. And when I was in Florida, I had a little trouble down there. And you know that song, It's No Secret, What God Can Do, Therefore Let God Come in Our System. We lost our little poodle dog down in Florida. He's just like a child for us. And I'll tell you how the Lord works. I was always a friend of the church, but never a member. I came to the Lord with my whole heart. And you know what we did down in Florida the last night we was there? They had everybody in Anna Marie Island looking for this poodle dog, Peppy, with a black blue collar. They had him on radio, TV, newspapers, and everything. No Peppy. We left Florida. And last night we was there, my wife is Catholic, and I'm Protestant. And she was down on her knees and she was praying and I was walking and praying and I said to her about how much I'd like to have that dog. And I said, if he's got, if anybody got him, give him a good home. But better yet, I'd like to have him back. And only a miracle bring him back. And then I hesitated and I said, only God performed a miracle, God. Because this rule is full of miracles that God performed. And I said, God, if that dog does come back, we get him back. I hesitate. I'm going to dedicate my life to you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give you my heart, God. Never thought I'd have to do it. Three days after we got home in Ohio, that telephone rang. And our dog was found in Anna Maria. I was sick. And they packed him up and put him in a plane and shipped Peppy home to us. And I still didn't think that God found that. You know. And when I went to the airport, I still didn't think it's the right dog to be part of it. And as I laid in the home, I was sitting in a chair waiting for to go to the hospital. It dawned on me, well, my gosh, what did you promise the Lord? And I went and was baptized to talk to the elders. The night I was baptized in the Apostolic Christian Church, our new church, it wasn't even completed. They came from all over Ohio and Pennsylvania to see the minister's son. I was the first member of Alcoholics Anonymous baptized in the Apostolic Christian Church. And I went to the 
and city husband in a in this sang for me that night I cried. May God be with you till we meet again. And then uh city husband an actor general when they took me apart here and put this new hip in me, I knew that Jesus was with me and the prayers of AA and the prayers of the church and the family. With all these things going for me, just before the lights went out for me, certainly, I knew that this operation would be a success. We've got to have that faith. As they taught in AA, faith without works of death. These are the gems, these are the things that I have got since I've been an alcoholic son. And as I journey on the road back day by day, my program of living is this. Direct communication with God every morning and every night. And just before I came here tonight, I went down here in my closet, and I got down on my knees, and my prayer was that God would be with me here, and that God would put words in my mouth tonight that I may say something to be of some help to these wonderful people of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially to the new man. And as I feel this way here, at the twilight years of my life, I don't know how long I got to be here, only God knows, whatever time I got left, I don't want to abuse it, I want to use it. And what I want to do with the years of God, his days of God is left, you know, like Sister Ignatius said, you say, God doesn't. We're only one heartbeat away from returning. And when God's going to call us, I don't know. But I feel this way. When the Lord does call me to go home, my one most fervent prayer is this. When Lord calls me and I go over that great divide to the horizon far beyond, may I leave the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, which has been my life, for a past few years and a few decades, in a far better frame of mind and condition than what Alcoholics Anonymous found me in Barbara, Ohio, in its supermarket on a rainy day in April. May I leave all you wonderful people in a much better frame of mind and condition than what you found me in my respective family, what's left them, and my old and new friends. And I, with a wave of the hand, and saying, God, I have done the best I can for what thou did. And there's a one concluding request I have tonight, which I always like to say before I close, is tonight, when you go to your respective home, God be with you at home. And if you do what I do every night, get down on your knees and have a nice talk with the Lord, and give him thanks for another day of sobriety and this better way of life and for the fellowship of alcoholics. And at the conclusion of your prayer, I want you to ask yourself one question. If you can look in the mirror, where would I be at tonight? If it wasn't for alcoholics anonymous. Thank you, one and all, and may God bless, and may God be with each and every one of us, and may each and every one of us continue to travel the road back of alcoholics anonymous.